welcome everybody and uh, thanks to joining us thanks for joining us uh, for what we hope will be a series of online urban transport next events one of the privileges of this role is that we have some time and some space to think about the future where next for urban transport but at the same time we're more than a, a think tank our members are the transport authorities that are charged with delivering improvements on the ground so they can take some of these ideas and make them happen on the ground we've got some great speakers for you and i'm also uh, absolutely delighted that we had over 200 people uh, registered for uh, this event so thank you for support for taking part today uh, our speakers uh, start with our chair zabi r bryce the ceo of sustrans who has uh, experience of not only making the case for better active travel, but also delivering it, delivering this revolution on the ground in his role at TFL uh, and now at Sustrans. We have Ben Still, the Chief Executive of the West Yorkshire uh, Combined uh, Authority, who also leads for the Urban Transport Group and Active Travel. Lots of great work being gone on in West Yorkshire, including uh, the first major cycle superhighway outside London, the Leeds Bradford Super Cycle uh, uh, Cycle Superhighway, uh, and also Dame Sarah Story, one of the most decorated athletes in British sporting history. Who needs uh, a bookcase background uh, when you can have the kind of background that uh, Sarah can have? Uh, but primarily here uh, in her role as the Active Travel Commissioner for the Sheffield City Region. So some rules of engagement. Um, Post any questions in the chat. Uh, my advice would be to be on point, uh, single questions only. And Xavier will delve into those questions uh, as the uh, debate unfolds. Uh, the hashtag for the event is hashtag UTGNEXT. So that's hashtag UTGNEXT. And I'll now hand over to our chair, uh, Xavier. Great. Thank you very much for that introduction, John. Um, so welcome everyone, and um, we were just reflecting before we got going on um, on yesterday's spending review, and um, if the revolution's not going to be motorised, then, then the fact that we've had 27 billion going into a multi-year roads programme versus about 1% of that into walking and cycling for, for the next year, um, something's going to need to change there arguably, but, but that's, that's maybe starting to preempt the debate. So, um, so as Jonathan said, I'm CEO of Sustrans and have been for about four, four, four and a half years now. And we've got a really simple mission, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, which is we make it easy for people to walk and cycle, um, which sounds kind of trite, but it's not because people tend to do what's easy. And I think we can probably agree that right now it's, it's not often the easiest thing to do to walk and cycle. So, um, but I think we all believe would like to see a revolution is not going to be motorised. And, um, and we're going to have a chat about that. Do, do put your questions into the, into the chat and I'll be picking and choosing from those. Um, and I've got a few questions to get us started. So, um, so I'm going to start with Sarah. Um, and Sarah, and I'm going to put the same question to you, Ben. Why have you chosen to, to leave policy and practical change that can make it easier for people to walk and cycle? What, what is it that's spoken to you about that? Well, I think um, for me personally, I've always been an incredibly active individual and it, it came, it comes as a shock, I think, when you realise just how inactive some people are and how um, unable they are to access activity and how trapped they feel in sort of the cycle of 
um, only ever using a vehicle or for those people that don't have access to a vehicle, having their horizons limited because they can't get to places that they'd like to go. Um, so I started working with British Cycling in their policy advising team. I'm a policy advocate alongside Chris Boardman. I started to really get into the idea of how we increase the number of women who are cycling with um, from our organisation's perspective. And that led into uh, some of the specific reasons why there are fewer women uh, cycling than men. Uh, and then that led into looking at why, you know, a wider group of people and a more diverse group of people may not be um, accessing cycling. Um, but as a family that's always been walkers, um, we have the pen eyes just, you know, almost can touch them um, on our doorstep. Knowing that um, some people just don't walk or are even um, un unable to walk for many reasons because of um, accessibility issues or just because they don't feel confident in their own fitness. Um, it, it's very much a, a subject that's close to my heart as well. So when the opportunity to work in Sheffield City Region for the Mayor Dan Jarvis came up, it was a, a bit of a different track for me, but it was something that I was really keen to try and make a difference on. And we have a great team in our active travel programme, um, and I'm really delighted to be working with them and trying to make a difference for the future. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And I think that that whole point around sort of people who, who maybe don't find it easy to, to, to be active and and how we appeal beyond the usual the usual people who might um who might find it easier to get on a on, on, on a bike or walk is one we might come back to later on. Thank you. Um, ben, same question to you. Why 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 active travel and, and the policy and delivery side of that? Thanks, Xavier. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is I feel kind of humbled by by Dame Sarah in, in terms of um taking part in this uh, in this discussion and uh, I guess my interest um, is part professional and part uh, part personal I think um, as MD of West Yorkshire Combined Authority we, we are the transport authority for uh, West Yorkshire and uh, and therefore encouraging um, use of sustainable transport is part of part of what we do and then as Jonathan has introduced the kind of wider urban transport role means that I've got the privilege of being able to talk across the metropolitan areas of England uh, and uh, and some in Scotland and Northern Ireland as well about some of these topics, um, which has given me much broader insight into some of the challenges um, that I think confront this agenda. Personally, I've, this is one this is one kind of portfolio that I I bit Jonathan's um, uh, uh, arm off for really to, um, to to take up. I've always loved cycling and walking, um, and what the heart of that for me is the freedom that it brings and the fact that I've always through my life just got on a bike when I needed to get somewhere um, and it's been kind of uh, just part of the day my daily routine is the kind of thing I'd like to see everywhere really and I think one of the interesting things we can perhaps discuss is the kind of boundaries between cycling as a leisure activity and, 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 and walking as a leisure activity and it's how you translate that into something that people turn to as their mode of choice when popping to the shops for journeys of a certain distance so so i'm really interested in in, in all of that um, i think what has really galvanized me though is some of the work we've done um, across utg looking at some of the health impacts um, and of um, uh, of not using uh, active travel not following active travel modes and some of the indirect impacts in in west yorkshire we see something like one in 20 deaths related to poor air quality um, and we see, um, you know, a third of um, a third of primary school children with some level of obesity when they leave primary school. These are things that walking and cycling and active travel more generally can really help address. Um, and hopefully, we can get to some of these issues in a bit more detail. 
Thank you, Ben. Um, I'm, ben, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stick with you and then go back to Sarah on sort of on sort of the next question, which is really so 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 there's a lot going on currently um, around active travel across, across the UK. It's sort of in some ways it feels a bit like boom time in terms of in terms of how walking and cycling has gone up the agenda over the last six months. So um, so starting with the positive, what are you most excited about in 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 West Yorkshire then? So can I? Can I talk about what I'm most excited about generally before, yeah. before going talking just about about West Yorkshire? So, so what I'm really pleased about is that we've now got a number of schemes and uh, you know even you might call the networks across some of the metropolitan areas that are really beginning to show strong benefits. And uh, again, a couple I would point to um, Manchester Oxford Road, for example, which was a pretty horrendous road with nevertheless fairly high levels of of cycling now greatly improved with you know large percentage i think something like 80 90 percent increases in in usage the, the the transformation in london has been amazing you know it's ever you know, since i was cycling there you know 20 years ago the improvements to cycle facilities in london and the way that it's become part of the everyday culture i think is um is, is fantastic and then you know closer to home the leeds bradford cycle superhighway is a different kind of it's a different kind of cycle infrastructure, but it is fully segregated. <clears throat> and we've seen um, we've seen over a million trips since it was opened um, in, in 2016. And those aren't people that are cycling from one length of the corridor to the other. They're not people traveling between Leeds and Bradford by bike. They're people that are using parts of that corridor for their journeys using cycling. Um, and, um, and in so doing, the, the team have created an environment along that roadway that makes walking more um, conducive as well. So I think it's it's actually seeing some of these things happening um, has been really positive. And then the fact that uh, two things: one, that is leading to greater acceptance, and so we can do more. And um, and that local politicians, although these schemes are far from free from controversy, and we might come back to that. Um, local politicians see the benefits in them and they, they don't have to burn quite so much political capital to get them in um, and to see them uh, to see them successful. So I think there's a lot really to be um, to be positive about in the sense that we're, we're beginning to create urban environments where walking and cycling is seen on a par with other forms of transport, which is great. Yeah, completely bad. And that, that example of sort of what London's done over the last 10, 20 years is it's an interesting one. I remember working in London on cycling about you know 10, 15 years ago, and and it was the comparisons we were needing to make would be would be in Northern Europe inevitably, and it was always well London's London's not like Amsterdam. It rains more when it doesn't, and um and I think that it got it, it's recently become the point that you use London as an example, and then it's well we're not like London, but now to be able to use other places across England and across the UK as an example is so positive. Yes, yes. Um, and it will get to the point where, where that argument just hopefully doesn't hold anymore. And um, so, 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 yeah, those, 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 those networks evolving and those bits of infrastructure are really positive. So, um, Sarah, same question for you. What, do you, what, what excites you? Um, I think one of the things that really excites me is the the raising of standards or the the specific target of raising standards for um, infrastructure that's going to enable more people to access walking and cycling. I think we'll all know somewhere where a cycle lane has been, you know, a metre, two metres long, um, ended with a dismount cyclist sign. Um, and then there's been a guard railing um, to prevent you from crossing the road. 
Um, and if it's even worse than that, it may have had a drop curb underneath that guard railing too. And so, you know, the, the government uh, putting out the um, LTM 120 document and their gear change document in the summer was really welcomed because when I came in to post in Sheffield City Region, I spoke to Pete Zanzotra, who I know is, is listening as well, about the, the need to raise standards and make it really aspirational to deliver something that's very, very high quality and not just a box ticking exercise. And I think the ambition of people is really being raised and it's starting to create some interesting discussions with those people who are going to implement the infrastructure on the ground, who are actually going to dig up the road and put it in. It's not the way we've used used to doing it it's going to be so much different and that different change will, will will attract the attention of people who haven't even considered it before and those are the people we need to reach because the people who don't think walking or cycling is for them are the ones that really really need to walk or cycle and um, more because they they need the activity building back into their lives so i think i'm most excited about the opportunity of raising standards and delivering something um quite different for the future thanks Sarah. Um, yeah. Can I, can I just come back in? Because I think I, I completely um, agree with that point. And I'd say um, two other things are really important as well uh, and give a, a cause for optimism. One is um, that I think central government is beginning to understand that it's not as well as infrastructure. You have to have the promotional material and the kind of behaviour change stuff alongside that. And um, I can remember giving um, evidence with others to um to, to various select committees on the importance of um encouraging revenue funding for behavior change and we're beginning to see that come through you know even in the announcements that were made yesterday and that's that's really positive because you do need as as, uh, as sarah has said to kind of keep uh, persuading people and encouraging people and and so that funding for that is really is really important but also that i think the planning process has really helped as well so we we do now have I think the, the space and the, the encouragement from central government, um, as well as through mayors and others, to actually develop long-term plans that we can then slowly build over time as funding appears, and that, that's really positive as well. And is that the LC whips there that you're referring yeah. to through exactly. that for local cycling walking infrastructure plans, which were which were started a few years ago, weren't they? But I know that they they provided that base on the idea that. If and when the money starts to come and it's starting to come. So I think sticking with sort of sticking with that promise and the excitement, so it sounds like we've got we've got some really powerful guidance in that LTM 120 note. Um, really good to see. The aspiration set out in gear change is really positive. And of course, back in the spring and summer, cycling levels soared as, as well as some leisure walking as people took advantage of empty roads and fine weather. It sort of proved the point, didn't it? Why don't people cycle? Because it doesn't feel safe. Um, and once it starts to feel safe, you see, you see levels go up. So, so are we going to see that sense of optimism realised? Have we got what we need to now to now, to now realise this? Is is the in short, is the revolution not going to be motorised? And are we well on our way? Start with Sarah. I think we're getting there, but I think we still have an incredible amount of myth busting to do. And anyone who follows CycleWalk SCR on Twitter and Facebook will see us attempting to bust some of the myths that are arising. And, uh, you know, some of them are very long standing, like the one about uh, vehicle tax and making sure that people are fully aware where the greatest threat of harm comes from and that behaviour change is needed, even if you never ever, if you're absolutely welded to your vehicle and you will never ever get out of it, you still have to be able to interact with a growing number of vulnerable road users in a safe manner. So I think it's really important that we, um, we, we address the things that make our roads feel unsafe. And when we removed the vehicles during lockdown, people felt safe. But if, if, if drivers who are considerate come back to those roads, 
then cycling will continue to feel safe. Walking, crossing the road, people know that they're being looked out for instead of just whizzing vehicles that, you know, go past them, uh, splash them from, you know, puddles on the road um, because people aren't being considerate. So I think we do still have to look at that to make sure that we can make our roads feel safe whilst the infrastructure is being built because you can't just wave a magic wand and make it, you know, look all segregated infrastructure, you know, within a few weeks. Absolutely. It, 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 will, it will take time. And I remember sort of... Um, mm. If you ask it, um, Philip Darnton, um, former former chair of Cycling England, tells a story about if you if you ask in Amsterdam, um, what you know, what, how do we how do we become <clears> like <throat> you? It was sort of like start years ago and keep going, yeah. um, because it it does take time to take time to change things. But um, so Ben, um, same question to you. Um, in terms of, so you optimistic? Are we on our way? Um, is, is are we going to realise that hope that we saw back back in the warmer months? So I'd, I'd certainly echo. Um, Sarah's comments and yours as well about the fact that this takes time and I think the fact that this this is a long-term journey that we're on is going to be a real theme for, for this conversation. Um, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because um, I think there was a, um, a see a kind of a change towards a greater emphasis on fresh air and exercise over the over the summer. Um, people did I think discover the benefits of actually carving out some time during the day of you know, during the day of being locked down to do some exercise and to get some fresh air and that that to me is something that we don't want to lose as we go both into winter and back to uh, a situation where where life may be returning to something a bit more a bit more normal for me the challenges within that is how do you encourage that shift from cycling and walking as a leisure activity something that you turn to to do, to go about your daily business mm. and um you know, I'd like to hope that with the right promotional campaigns, we can just continue to, it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but to, to, to nudge people to think about that a, a bit more. And I think, you know, the messaging from the government's kind of obesity tackling campaign is all thing, are all things that can, that can help. Um, I, I completely agree with, with Sarah's comments about safety and, you know, it's providing segregated and safe environments is absolutely critical. I worry also a little bit that we might see a resurgence of the private car as we head towards more electric vehicles um, because cars will be seen as less polluting, whether mm. that's true or not, you know, we can discuss. Um, and they are so massively convenient. And so it's about selling the other benefits of, of, of active travel um, to sit alongside those obvious benefits of, of the motor car. Um, so I think there's a real challenge. The last thing I would say is I riding over the horizon is the is the prospect of uh cheaper and more available e-bikes and i think certainly in places like yorkshire and where there's a hill or two that might be a real thing to, to help people get out more as well right thanks ben I'm, I'm, we might come back to the question of electric cars because my own view is it's, it's, it's not terribly revolutionary um but they, they do represent a significant inflection point to change other things. So that may be one to come back to if we've got time. I want to stick then with, with the one that you came back to around, um, uh, which is which also answers uh, starts to answer Paul Roberts's question about how do we kickstart the uptake, and um, but but specifically the point the point you made actually about how do we that that distinction almost or the how do you get people who maybe cycle for leisure in lycra or not. And then how do we translate that into everyday journeys? 
And I think, you know, especially especially with, with Dame Sarah here, that'd be a great question to put, to put Dame Sarah, given her role in British cycling and the fact she's a professional cyclist. Um, but um, so so I'm going to go to Sarah and then come back to you on that, Ben, and maybe see if anyone's got any specific questions on that in the Q&A. So, um, so Sarah, this question of sort of leisure cycling versus um, everyday cycling, how much is how much is there? Is there enough bleed over? How do we get more? Is there, is there, do we make too much of the distinction? I think that we do make too much of the distinction because we never really ask a driver whether they're going out and about for leisure or for, for work. And when we talk about providing infrastructure for walking and cycling, it seems to be for, you know, utility journeys only, not just for pleasure. And we need both. So we need those off-road routes that may enable people to have a more scenic route home from work or, you know, from the shops. But we also need the direct on-road segregated tracks that are going to allow people to, to get there safely, the most direct routes. Um, so I think it's really important that we, we just talk about journeys and allow people to make their journey sort of organically. Um, and if they're going to start cycling, they may want to start doing that in their leisure time initially and make sure that they know their routes if it's not that obvious. But as soon as it becomes obvious, if you're sat in a traffic jam, in a vehicle traffic jam and you think, actually, there's a bike lane there. I should use that tomorrow because my journey's only, you know, 10 minutes in the car. But most of that I'm sat in traffic. Those are the sorts of things that are going to make it more appealing. So it needs to be more attractive, more convenient and easier to access. And then people get to the other end. It's a lot less hassle trying to find a car parking space. You know, they can park the bike and, you know, safe, secure storage. And that has to be something that we, we look at, the components around the active travel lanes that enable people to make that journey easily outside of shops, outside of schools, outside of workplaces, railway stations, and um, bus stations, wherever it is. And also that idea that you might even cycle your bike to go for a walk. You know, yeah. do many people do that? And Pete and I were discussing that a few weeks ago. Do, can you park your bike somewhere in the Peak District, say, and go for a walk? So all of those things ought to be um, possible to do. And as people see it's more possible, then that might become more normal. And normalising the idea that it's just a journey and doesn't really matter what the purpose is. Absolutely. And I, I think that, that sense of, you know, the, the way you started there with, with, you know, we don't ask people why they're using their car or using the road. Um, is it for a holiday or a work trip? I know when we were looking in Sustrans at, at what should the future of the National Cycle Network be, there was a lot around intent and who's it serving. And the truth is it serves a whole variety of different journeys. Um, and and, and it's, it's, a, it's a false distinction. So I so re really recognise that. I think we'll I'd like to come back to the walking one because it's very easy. Often we, we tend to talk more about cycling. So I'll come back to walking. But I'd also just like to stick with you, Sarah, before before finally getting to you on this question, Ben. Question from Emma Young. Um, how do we get women to do more utility cycling? Well, that's a great question and one that we're constantly trying to answer. I think it's about having the right sort of bike to be able to make that journey. So if you're going to the shops, you don't want to be doing it on my fancy like racing bike because there's nowhere to stick any shopping. Um, it needs to be the right kind of bike. And we need to see more Dutch bikes because I think one of the problems that we have a lot of the time is when we talk about cycling, or you put cyclist into Google, there's lots of pictures of people like me dressed in Lycra and not so many people, you know, just pootling along on an everyday type of bike with a basket or with panniers with, with ways to carry stuff. And people assume that you have to have some kind of heavy rucksack on a fancy bike in order to go from A to B carrying stuff. Now, that's how I do it, because generally I'm trying to do, you know, my training at the same time. Um, but if you're going to the shops, you don't need a racing bike like mine. You can have a much better version, a utility bike that's easier to ride. It might be heavier. It might be an e-bike version. 
But I think we need to get out that breadth of the type of cycle that is available. And that's where, you know, having a subsidy on e-bikes is going to be so crucial as we um, try to evolve our and decarbonize, um, you know, our environment, because we need to make sure that people have that option to not just choose an e-car, because that's not completely, you know, carbon free, emission free. There's, there's issues with the, you know, delivery of that and how it's made. Whereas an e-bike, you know, it's just so simple. It's just so free. It can carry stuff. Um, and that's the sort of thing. So we need to see more of that. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think that's one of the things that is a, is a big challenge. But it also doesn't necessarily feel safe. Um, and when we um, looked at this with British Cycling, 66% of women, and um, it's nearly two years ago now, but they said they just don't feel safe cycling. They don't have the confidence. So it's great to see that there's adult cycle training included in the recent emergency package and that there's more sort of emphasis towards providing that training if people feel that they need it but I think we need to make sure that that's inclusive and if that needs to be run in specific way you know for, for women's only groups um, or whatever it might be then those things have to be provided for so that everyone feels included and it doesn't look like it's just for someone who doesn't look like me if that makes sense. Absolutely absolutely Sarah and I think I'll, I'm keen to come back to that question of of opening up and making making cycling and, and walking more inclusive and more for all and how we address that. And there are a few questions um, in, in the Q&A about that. So, so we'll come back to that, come back to that later, definitely. And um, e-bikes is a fascinating topic. And there's a lot about how actually once people try an e-bike, you know, you just see the smiles on people's faces and, and the types of journeys it opens up as well. So maybe another one we'll come back to. But um, Ben, I'd, I just want like to put that question to you around, um, it's one you raised a couple of times, which is how do you sort of get, make that transition from leisure and, and help people make transition from leisure cycling through to everyday cycling? So, so I agree with what's been said by, by, by you and by Sarah. Um, I guess there's a couple of points I would just draw out though. One is that I do think it is about, um, there's, there's quite a heavy emphasis here on behavioral messaging um, and encouragement. Um, to sit alongside the kind of improvements that, um, that, that Sarah has outlined. And the ones that I draw out from what Sarah has said that seem to me to be particularly important in order to normalise cycling are not, not just to put in the segregation, for example, on busy routes and mark it on, on marked cycleways and, 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 and similar on, on non-busy routes, but providing somewhere secure to, um, to, 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 to leave your bike at both ends of the journey so this is this begins to kind of seep into how do we design residential areas and and homes um how much storage space are we providing when we're designing new homes um how do you create cycle space at the at the origin end of the trip and then in in um around towns how do you create secure space secure cycle storage there and then for the journey how do you make sure that it's safe that it's lit that that you are um, that, that it's it's clearly waymarked, um, so that the journey be it becomes something that you would just do normally. I do think the bicycle is a critical part of that, and I agree with what you say about e-bikes. Um, and it's interesting to, to see that kind of because e-bikes came from the continent, they they looked a lot more like Dutch bikes. They had mud guards and you know lights built in, and they weren't designed for maximum speed. They were designed to get on cycle a few kilometers and get off and stow stuff on. And that's that's great. And it's what's interesting is how you then see e-bikes become more and more sporty um, and more and more about how to get down a down a mountain bike trail as fast as you can, which is which great and has its niche, but I think you've got to make cycling normal. You've got to make it seem as something that you would just normally do. Um, 
And that probably means having more bikes at the cheap end of the market that more people can afford as well. Yeah. We've just got ourselves a really great folding e-bike. Um, it's about £1,200 and it folds up and it goes a certain distance. And um, now my husband uses it to go up and down our hill to go and collect things from the village instead of walking because it's a little bit quicker. Um, so, yeah, I think there's loads of options to and the start we're starting to see. And if, the, if more e-bikes are in more demand, then that will help to drive down that cost as well, which will hopefully um, improve things. Um, but, yeah, folding e-bike, it's revolutionised my mum's riding as well because she yeah. can now come along and she can keep up with our three year old, which was um, slightly embarrassing before. <laughs> I think there is and it's interesting isn't it about that you know talking to people who who aren't cyclists or aren't you know aren't into active travel and wouldn't recognize those words if you talk about e-bikes they sort of almost feel it's I've had a few people say isn't that cheating actually yeah. as if there's almost a guilt about getting an e-bike and certainly in talking to somebody who you know who, who does cycle there it's almost a thought which I think again plays to this fact we just need to make it easy and normal and normal and normalize it so um so there's um, ben, you touched on it. That there's 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 some questions here um, in in the Q and A around. So, how do we make sure we can accommodate these bicycles? How do we make sure we can store bicycles? Not everyone's fortunate enough to have a garage. Um, not everyone can you know can can put the, has a, can can wheel can wheel a bike through the house to the, to the shed at the back. So, how do we make it easier to reclaim car parking spaces? And how do we make sure that we can actually accommodate the types of bicycles, cargo bikes, e-bikes, adaptive trikes that we need to normalise cycling. Um, and um, Sarah, I'll go back to you and then to Ben. Well, I think for the for the the, the question that was um, there very early on about um, you know if you don't have a vehicle, you want to be able to park your bike on your street um, outside at your house instead of taking it inside or around the back then they, you can apply to the council to have that space turned into a bike parking space. And there's some incredible examples um, down in Waltham Forest. And I think that needs to become an easier system to, to get into a council and say, this is where we'd like to suggest for this street, there might be 10, 15 bikes um, capable of being stored within this hangar, as it were, that takes up one car parking space on the side of the road. Um, and it might you know, become part of the, the environment. There might be a seat at either end. It starts to create a little parklet or something like that. So I think that needs to be a, a more available system that people can apply to so that they have that option and then the way that it's funded is obviously down to the council to make a decision on but it provides that street then with a way of doing it and um, I know down in London that they have a waiting list for bike parking spaces because they're just so popular and they're trying to turn more and more car parking spaces into these you know bike hangers so I think that's definitely one way of doing it but it's also important to recognize that by increasing the infrastructure standards and making it um, part of it the requirement to have wide enough um, cycle tracks and active travel lanes that within that the, the other components of that include that safe secure bike parking and that would then need to be um, suitable for parking any type of bike and so one of the, the the things that we're working on really hard in South Yorkshire is making sure that whenever somebody puts in place um, you know about a place to park a bike that it could park as something as long as a tandem but it's also suitable for parking an ice trike or a a recumbent bike or if somebody's going to be taking a bike where a wheelchair can be loaded onto the front 
and an able-bodied person cycles with that and um, that, that there are places for those people to park that type of machine as well so as we start to open up the discussion around who can use these cycle tracks the active travel lanes then it means that we have a better way of um you know explaining what we need to provide for for parking at either end and that also then leads on to whether you can then take it onto the train park it in the bike part of the train and making sure that it's accessible so that it opens up a whole new you know way of getting around for those people who are perhaps currently maybe very reliant on someone coming to collect them in a vehicle to go a very short journey. Absolutely. Ben, um, some really interesting points there around sort of how we can sort of widen who is able, especially in this case, to cycle. What, what are your thoughts on, on that and, and sort of the parking question as it relates to that? So I don't think I have much to add to what Sarah has very eloquently kind of set out. I guess I, I would say I think that environment is becoming easier um, by which I mean car parks are becoming more complex places um, because we're needing uh, to accommodate different types of car, not least. Um, and so, you know, retrofitting um, uh, electric charging points into car parks is opening up the question around how do you future proof a car park? What does your car park need to do? Uh, who does it need to accommodate? And I think that makes fitting in the needs of um, uh, active travel uh, users more e easier and I'm not saying that it's, it's easy yet I'm not saying that it's a it's a job done but it's a job I think that has that has begun um, the other thing I would say is you know my experience on on the continent is that there's an element where you just that as bicycles become or if bicycles can become um, uh, less expensive and uh, I guess this might sound kind of heresy, but slightly less cherished, but things that you just use um, and you're prepared to leave around a bit more, then that's probably a good thing as well. Yeah, definitely. I remember um, uh, speaking to somebody in, in Denmark who said, I, I don't understand why you British are so obsessed about bicycles. Plus, they're as exciting as washing machines. Now, that, that's a cliche, of course, but I think it does speak to sort of how bicycles are perceived. And I think it takes us back to this. To, again, there's a question here that, I, that I'd like to put to, to Dane Sarah around debunking the myth that cycling is elitist. So I'm going to come to you on that in a second, Sarah. Um, somebody saying that they, they heard this at, at, at a recent seminar. So let me just find, find the question. Um, and, uh, and, and it, was, it was around debunking that particular myth. Um, so two seconds as I navigate this. Here we are on a, on, an, on a Rick's webinar last week. I was asked, isn't cycling elitist? Please could thank Sarah help debunk this. Um, so I'm going to come to you, Sarah, to debunk that. But I think it generally opens up this question about how do we, beyond making it easy and safe, which is and, and pleasurable, which is another point in some of the questions actually, and stress-free, how do we reach out? And to your point, Ben, it's more than just the infrastructure. And how do we ensure that we that we are able to appeal to people who maybe are or who are currently underrepresented in cycling in, in, in this country? But I'll start with you, Sarah, on that question of how do we debunk the myth that cycling is elitist? Well, I think the reason it's probably there is because it started with um, the Olympic and Paralympic team, the, the revolution of our medal winning prowess in 2008 in Beijing, when um, 17 gold medals were won by the Paralympic team and eight by the Olympic team. And suddenly everybody wanted to be, um, you know, an elite cyclist, wanted to ride in the Tour de France. Obviously, Team Sky was launched and then we had the success of multiple um, Tour de France winners that were British. Uh, and that's kind of continued. And I suppose there was that strand that British cycling drove in such an incredible way. Um, and then that that's sort of 
made cycling the new golf in many ways, which other people may see as another elitist activity. Um, but really what we, we know about cycling is that it has this power to transform lives. And so it was about trying to trickle that down. It can inspire children and children want to, you know, pretend to be um, Victoria Pendleton on the way to school or they want to try and be like Chris Froome on the way home from school if they're coming back up the hill. But they also need to know that that's something that they can do, you know, every single day just for just just because they can. And so we, we do need to widen that breadth of the type of people that are seen what's well, trying to galvanize that inspiration from what we all kind of have missed this year in, in live sport and not had the opportunity to go and watch on the roadside and, and obviously unfortunately next year the, the tour de yorkshire won't happen either so it's trying to create those links between the elite where the inspiration lies and, and making sure that we understand why it's such a you know it, it's the magic pill it solves so many problems it solves our pollution problems the air quality problems it solves congestion and um, it makes people fitter and healthier and happier more productive and so by allowing people like myself who um, and, and Chris Boardman, obviously, who've raced at the highest level as well, more of us who can kind of debunk that myth and just be seen out and about just because we can um, riding our bikes is really important. But also celebrating the fact that if you see someone who's out on a bike and I think uh, Chris Boardman's talked about this on social media, I have as well. Um, they are the heroes of our transport network at the moment, because while public transport capacity is limited with social distancing required we do need more people to choose to walk or cycle instead of jumping into a single person car journey and trying to get that across in the media it's an incredibly powerful tool and if we can get the media on our side to talk about the power of active travel then we could potentially revolutionize people's assumptions around it and debunking some of the more dangerous myths around the idea that cyclists are reckless or that you know that the stereotypical um, mammal some people call it so it's a horrible term in many ways but it's thrown around in such an aggressive way and it can be incredibly damaging so I think we all have a role to play and you know I'm you know I love being out on the e-bike although um yeah I definitely won't be taking it to the start line <laughs> thank you Sarah Ben um so so um we, we do quite a bit of work and I know that other um uh, organizations like ours do as well in, in terms of trying to both fund and support community groups um, and charities to work with community to try and encourage both cycling and the kind of provision of bikes um, and to do so cheaply and I was what the reason I was slightly distracted I was reading some of the comments in the chat about bike thefts um, and does that you know how that puts people how that puts people off and I think some of the things that we've seen through things like the the big bike revival and so some of the the, the recycling work that I that we funded and supported in in Bradford, for example, is around how you get those bikes that get dumped back into the back into the community, and I think you can do a lot in that in that space. I was uh, I've read I was reading some articles about um, how community groups in Liverpool were, were encouraging um, uh, kids to kind of take up cycling rather than do other less socially desirable activities and how you capture some of that desire that um that children have to kind of pull a wheelie and how you translate that into being becoming more attached to their bikes as they get as they get older um so i think there's a lot that needs to happen in that space i, I do just think it is um trying to find ways to channel funding into these things that you know don't score well on traditional cost benefit appraisals because you're you are valuing very different kinds of outcomes 
and then just keep plugging away. You won't get, I think it's kind of a theme of this conversation is you don't get fantastic results overnight. You need to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so I'd like, I'd like to just move from cycling now to talk about walking. So, um, so there's a question from John Kilmer here that says that the, the DFT's walking and cycling statistics show that, show that almost three quarters of adults walk at least once a week and nearly all local authorities have at least 60% of their adult population walking at least once a week. Um, and, but many conversations on that, so it's walking something almost everybody does, we'll call it walking and wheeling. And, um, but many conversations on active travel, indeed ours for the last 40 minutes, have tended to focus on cycling. So first, quest, first part of the question, is walking the poor relation to cycling? And how can we, how do we talk about walking in a way that isn't like talking about breathing? But it's one of the myths I tackled this week, actually, because we do, you know, active travel takes over when we talk, uh, cycling takes over when we talk about active travel. But one of the reasons for that is because in the past number of years, when we've tried to build cycling infrastructure, we've lumped bikes on the pavement and should call it a shared use path. And all that that's done is inconvenience pedestrians even more than they are uh, and put cyclists in a position that they're now labelled as going too fast and dangerous. So walking is a, an incredibly important part. And by providing segregated safe space for cycles, we're actually supporting the, um, the important part of active travel, which is walking. And so many more people walk. So if we can increase the level of walking by the same amount of, as we're trying to increase the level of cycling, then that would be you know, even more people walking just, just by the nature of those figures. So it is an incredibly important part. And there's all sorts of other types of ways we can improve things for people who are pedestrians, because uh, we always seem to corral pedestrians into one space to make it, you know, they are only allowed to cross the road in a certain place and they are only allowed to cross the road when we decide it's um, convenient enough to stop the, the vehicle traffic. Um, and so we've built guard railings, we've, um, you know, timed pedestrian lights so that they only get a 30 second crossing every five minutes and um, it's not done on demand to, to support pedestrian journeys. So, so many people have just said, well, I can't be bothered to walk anywhere. I just keep having to stop. I don't feel safe on the central island trying to cross to the next part of the road. So trying to make continual crossings for pedestrians to cross in one phase instead of two, three or four, making sure that they have priority, um, you know, in the places where the vehicles should be the invited guests is really important. Uh, and making sure that people can see that that walking journey for that, you know, in Sheffield City region, for example, uh, journeys to work of a kilometre or less, 40% are done in a vehicle. Well, you know, that's a very short walk, really, and it needs to be made easier to do so. And so we're gathering the comments as to why those journeys are so difficult to do on foot, to try and make sure that 100% of journeys, really, if they're a kilometre or less, they should be walked, because it, it, in theory, it should be quicker by the time you've got in the car, got out the car, well, found your parking space, got out the car, you've got children with you, bags, that kind of thing. So, yeah, we, we do need to make sure that we talk about walking. But by improving things for cycling, we're also improving things for people who are walking. Yeah, completely. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I think that point around pedestrians being corralled and treated as an inconvenience to the movement of metal boxes is something that, you know, is changing, but there's, there's a long way to go. And it's good to see the other thing we haven't spoken about is the highway code changes and the consultation on those with a road user hierarchy and that is looking at pedestrian priority as part of that. But there's, there's a long way to go. And, and I know that the, um, the Prime Minister's Transport Advisor, Andrew Gilligan, certainly has strong views on the way that cycling has tended to get lumped in together with walking, some of which has, has obviously has been reflected in gear change, for example. But, um, but yeah, walking is... So, so Ben, how do we... 
how do we talk about walking and um, in a way that, 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 that pushes it up the agenda and, and makes it easy for people to walk, easier for people to walk? So, so I've got a couple of points to say on this. I think the first thing is that walking could become the real, the real winner out of you know, the otherwise um, really challenging 2020 year of kind of the pandemic because more people are walking and have walked. And as I said earlier, I, th I do think there's that emphasis, that kind of new renewed emphasis on exercise and spending a bit of time walking. And the fact that the lockdown has perhaps freed some people, not everyone, of course, and there's been many, many frontline workers for whom this hasn't been the case, but freed some people up to, to plan their day a bit more in a bit more of an organized way and to, to kind of get off the constant treadmill of, of um, uh, of rushing around from one activity to the next. So I, I, I think there is, there's an opportunity to capitalize on that and to encourage people to, to think twice. And as, as, as Sarah has said, to kind of, to walk when they would have otherwise taken their car. I think there's a real opportunity there. I'd also say that um, I think walk, we, we, we tend to talk about walking infrastructure in quite a, quite a narrow way, but actually a lot of local authorities are doing a lot of great work at kind of reducing the dominance of the car in their towns and cities and in improving the quality of public realm. And you, you know this because they're often, these schemes are often very controversial, particularly about how the urban designers find the right balance between um, the needs of um, those with um, that are mobility impaired in some way, the, the needs of different road users. They're often quite controversial schemes, but what they're trying to do is make it easier for people to get around on foot and um, or, or, or on wheel, as you say. And I think that's some of the kind of, there's a lot of work in that space and I wouldn't want to, to kind of either undermine or call into question that stuff. We're, we're doing a lot of work at the moment and having lots of quite heated conversations about the center of Leeds and, and the way that you kind of take the car out of some of the um, inner, um, the inner, vehicle routes and pedestrianise those and or, or reduce them down to just buses. So I think lots of that space is, is happening, which is all about making the, the, uh, the pedestrian environment more uh, more friendly. I, I think we're not matching that in how we talk about walking though. So I think to, to some extent, the, the level of activity in improving urban, the urban environment does not, <clears throat> does not carry through into an encouragement to walk more. Um, no. no, thank you, Ben. And I think that's, for me, there's a there's a common link between walking and cycling, which is the human nature of both and the ability to interact with others, and the, the, the um you know which is which is a civilizing aspect of it that um that you just don't get with any metal box um and and I think there's there's a there's a common piece there and 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 I'm always struck by when you see somewhere that you know, 20 or 30 years ago used to used to have access used to be a car park or used to have access to cars and no longer does you know who would want to go back to that. And um, you know Leicester Square being a prime example, um, just an iconic one. Um, okay, on what I'm, I'm going to go actually to 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 the to, to a question put early on in the chat, um, which I think starts to get to some of the things you were touching on there, Ben, around the emergency active travel fund, maybe, and sort of some of the some of the difficult conversations and, and challenges that have been, they've been around that. So, so the question from Chris Carter was quite a pointed one. Does the panel think that the emergency active travel fund approach has helped or hindered? Um, so, um, so Ben, I'm going to start with you and then come come to, come back to you on that, Sarah. So, um, so Ben, emergency active travel fund. We've all seen sort of 
photos of empty cycle lanes in some aspects of the press and on social media, um, the moving of wooden planters um, related to this, has, has the approach helped or hindered? So, I mean, I guess I guess I could start by saying it was, you know, it's, it's been an exceptional measure in an exceptional time. Um, and in essence, I guess I would, um, I would start by saying that the fact that the government wanted to encourage walking and cycling at this time was a positive thing. And they wanted to, that to happen quickly. And they asked, you know, groups and local authorities and, and stakeholders to respond rapidly. Um, and in any environment which you try and do that, <clears throat> there will always be one or two things that don't go quite as well as expected. Um, it is always a great idea, indeed essential, to consult and engage with those citizens and communities that are being affected by any change and to do so in advance. And then ideally to put things down on a temporary basis first, see how they work, um, and, uh, and then make them permanent thereafter if they seem to be successful. And examples like Waltham Forest, London, elsewhere, show that a skeptical population could very rapidly come round uh, if you give these things time. Time was the one thing, of course, that we didn't have during that, during that period of emergency active travel funding. So I think some lessons have been learned, but I think the vast majority of those schemes um, were, were ideas that authorities already had and have been successfully received. And I'd also add that some of the ones that have been more controversial were more about creating in a hurry social distancing space rather than putting in the kind of um, the low traffic neighbourhood um, uh, measures uh, that that, play, the that authorities might have been working on for some time. So a mixed picture, I'd say, so yeah. Thank you, Ben. I mean, the, the Walton Forest stat that always sticks in my mind is, is when, when the scheme was first introduced or first being mooted, I think 44% of residents were opposed and five years on only 1.2% I think would want to go back to how it was. Mm. Um, but as we know, change, change is always hard and the perceived taking away of things from people is, 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 always, is always challenging in any area. But, um, so Sarah, what, what do you think about the Emergency Act to Travel Fund and, sort of where, and, 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 and where we are now in tranche two of that funding and, um, and, and how, do we make, how do we make it a success? Well, I think it was, um, well, it was something that Dan Javis and I wrote to the Prime Minister to ask him to prioritise walking and cycling and the recovery from the pandemic. And obviously, at that point, there was sort of a prediction that the, the autumn and winter were going to be difficult, um, that the lockdown we have at the moment doesn't really look anything like the lockdown we had um, back in the spring, largely because more journeys are allowed and it hasn't been you know, said to, to stop using your car in quite the same way as it was you know, back in March. Um, but it was absolutely the, the best way to raise the profile uh, of certain phrases that people hadn't heard of before. So um, it's interesting when you see the, the Oxford Dictionary deciding on the phrases or the words of the year. Um, I would have added things like active travel, um, low traffic neighbourhoods, active neighbourhoods, all of the different terminologies that we're kind of used to and use day in, day out, but that some people were introduced to. Nobody knew what it was like to live in an active or a low traffic neighbourhood um, until, you know, the lockdown when the, the number of vehicles and the, the, the traffic volume, vehicle traffic volume, was reduced back to the levels of the 1950s and 60s, when at that point it was more possible, more people walked or, or cycled. My dad said, yeah, I used to cycle to school um, from Romilly into Manchester. Um, and that, that's not a journey that any school child would do, any high school child will probably do these days. So I think it, you know, the, the emphasis that was put onto walking and cycling 
was really important. And even now you look at some of the communications, it's about walk or cycle where you can try not to use your car, single person journeys being kind of the, the death of roads because of the amount of congestion that will cause. And now, and it's also a, a mixed picture, largely because of the different um, capabilities across the UK with different levels of expertise uh, as to what this meant and how to implement that. So in places where it's kind of something that's being done already, there's an active travel programme or a walking or cycling commissioner, kind of it's already at a slightly higher level. And in other places, it's like, yes, we need to do this. We can see the benefit of this. And it's perhaps not implemented with as the, the same level of um, understanding as to what the outcome may be. And sadly, we saw places putting cones of for traffic um, to down to one lane, vehicle traffic one lane and then bikes on the other, only for three or four days later, the whole thing to be taken out because it hadn't been um, you know, worked through in, in quite the way everyone had hoped it would. So I think we, we did see a mixed picture of reaction, but ultimately it was exactly the right thing to try and do to give people that um, opportunity to see what life could be like. And we haven't achieved the same levels of cycling beyond that initial lockdown as perhaps could have happened if things had been a little bit more, you know, a bit easier, perhaps, I'm not sure. But I think it's raised the level um, of expectation about what could be done in the future. And it has introduced some people to the options that they didn't previ previously think were available to them. And hopefully it's given us a platform to keep pushing for the levels of funding that are needed, because unless we have comprehensive, sustained levels of funding to improve the infrastructure for walking and cycling, then we won't go anywhere near what we perhaps hoped we would when um, Dan Jarvis and I wrote to the Prime Minister and said, we need this to be, um, you know, the base of our public transport system for the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. I think that point on sustained levels of funding is so important, isn't it? I mean, when you have a five-year control period on rail, um, a five-year RIS for roads, and then and then consistent one-year funding, funding for walking cycling, it's hard to plan anything on that basis. And um, there's, um, we've got we've got that five minutes left um, before I hand back to Jonathan to close us out. Um, so um, I'm I just wanted to dwell on that point around sort of capability and and which I think you touched on there, Sarah, and, and um, which is 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 sort of the, the ability of teams and local authorities to respond to new funding and and uh, new funding streams after so many years of, of very little funding. Where there's there's been a little more with promise of more to come, and and I'll, I'll put the question to Ben: How much of a challenge is it to to sort of to change and upscale teams, or is that is that not really an issue? And is it more about the lack of money? Uh, I think the two things go hand in hand, Sevier. You need um, you, you need the certainty of the funding that that Sarah has talked about in order to um, have the confidence to to build uh, permanent and sustainable teams um, because we are, we have seen, particularly in smaller local authorities, um, the, 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 the delivery of existing projects gets sidetracked when the, when the next kind of emergency uh, fund or bidding competition arrives. It's often the same officers having to spread themselves too thinly to do too many, to do too many things. I think with, this, with the certainty that comes from longer term funding, you can begin to build the kind of team that can per be permanently in place delivering project after project with a team alongside that are doing any bidding that's required. Although, of course, we would prefer to be in an environment where we weren't always having to bid to central government through competitive processes, but were, were trusted and empowered to have money devolved so that it could be determined by 
uh, by local politicians. Of course, thank you, Ben. Um, so with, with, with just a few minutes left, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna go to the popular vote and the most popular vote upvoted question was from Mark Ramsden. And I'm gonna, so I'm gonna finish with that one, which, um, which talks about active travel, let's say walking and cycling, um, talks about both walking and cycling. Um, and, um, and, and a topical topic, um, the regeneration of the high street. So um, how, that, so, so, so Sarah and then Ben, how do you think active travel can support regeneration of the high street? We know from um, numerous stats and studies in other places that the increased footfall that walking and cycling brings to the high street uh, enables people to spend more. People who visit on foot or bike will visit more often and spend more as a result. So it's a key way of making sure that we can help recover um, you know, high streets and get more people down to their local shops and get people thinking about, you know, shopping more locally, supporting local businesses and doing it in a more convenient way than having to find somewhere to park. Um, and it's interesting, some people say, oh, yeah, but it's, you know, it's a lot easier if I go to the out of town place, it's, you know, a lot quicker. But actually, when you park, um, you know, outside of a, a major shopping centre, you're walking probably just as far. So the idea that you should be able to park outside your local shop just doesn't add up when you're prepared to park in a car park and walk across um, and then into a big shopping centre. So I think we have, um, you know, cycling and walking has a huge role to play. And that's one of the reasons why you'll see cities around Europe and, and across the world prioritising space for people to walk and cycle to their local shops, removing car on-street car parking spaces, not just to enable social distancing if people are queuing, but also to make sure there's space for people to sit and rest when they arrive and to spend some time. And if people are there spending some time, then they're more likely to remember the other thing they need and go into another shop and just dwell and, and, and have a place to be. And so placemaking and, and having a high street that you enjoy visiting because it feels pleasant, it's only going to feel pleasant if it's um, quiet, there's not that vehicle sound and it's, you know, got clean air, which is not going to happen if you've got a queue of traffic alongside the shops as well. Sarah. Ben. Uh, so well what she said um, <laughs> <laughs> plus plus I've had one thing which is um, it's possible for for some um, parts of the economy that the move to increased levels of home working means that there's another opportunity for the decentralization and kind of revitalization of smaller community town and, and village centers and those places you know, with, a, with a bit of nudge and the right investment can be well suited to walking and cycling and we absolutely must capitalize on that opportunity. Absolutely, thank you very much Ben, thank you Sarah. Well, um, well it's a big topic and we haven't done justice to all the great questions and comments. Um, I'm particularly sad we didn't, I didn't, didn't allow time to get to questions on public transport and integration with walking and cycling. Public transport having suffered badly as a consequence of the last 12 months, nine months and, um, and, um, and critical to the, to the future we all want to see. But um, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to all for all questions. And with that, I will hand back to Jonathan. Thanks, Aviar. And uh, thanks, uh, Dame Sarah and Ben, for what was a terrific conversation, everything that we hoped we would get when we set this event up. And thanks to everyone who took part. Just to let people know that as the Urban Transport Group, we run a network of lead officers from across the city regions that meet very regularly to share experience and approaches, what works, and also to liaise with DFT about driving forward 
active travel measures. We're also looking, at, as Ben was saying, around is the more we can do to uh, explore the potential of e-bikes. A lot of talk about e-scooters, but personally, I think e-bikes have far more potential. And is there something we can add there? So watch this space. This is the first in a series of Urban Transport Next events. Uh, number two, hopefully in January, will be about how we can get a more diverse transport industry that better reflects the diversity of the places it serves. So watch this space. Uh, we'd certainly welcome your feedback as well about this initial event, what you liked about it, what you didn't as we uh, shape future events. Um, and we really hope that you enjoyed spending your uh, lunchtime with us. Enjoy your afternoon. And let's all keep working to ensure that the revolution will not be motorised. Mm -hmm.